And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith back with another episode of Cinema, and it is brought to you by Dark Matter TV. So I wanted to revisit this episode uh, on the pursuit, the Hollywood pursuit for the Holy Grail. And the Holy Grail is artificial intelligence, AI, and the ability to create a film totally by computer. And while some of you roll your eyes and think that will never happen, it's actually already happening. And we're going to talk about that a little bit because Martin Scorsese appeared again in the press just yesterday, underscoring his his opinion of the difference between what is a cinematic film and his uh, distaste for the word content. And immediately Twitter and online came back at him and they always throw the same shit at Martin Scorsese. And that is, oh, he's a crabby old man or the the uh, infamous Simpson meme of, of Grandpa Simpson shaking his fist with the headline, old man yells at cloud. And I have to say, I, I can't agree with him more. This will all fold in to what I'm talking about in the way of trying to find what Hollywood wants is the perfect algorithm using uh, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, artificial intelligence to create a film from script up, or as they used to call it in the old days, making a film by committee. So I want to draw a couple of analogies here. If you remember The Fly from 1986, a Jeff Goldblum film, and uh, one of the biggest problems that Jeff Goldblum had in the film in the beginning was the ability to teleport uh, living things. He could teleport inanimate objects. That was not a problem. And then suddenly he figured something out. He had to reprogram the software to understand the complexity and the point, I guess, or the essence of human tissue. And you remember the uh, the aborted attempt, the, the bad attempt when he tried to teleport the baboon and how it came out and on the other side is this, this real mess, this living mess. And when it dawned on Goldblum that while the, the technology is all there to reassemble things and put things into a proper order, the issue really was the subtext, the feeling, the connective tissue. And I think that's what we're looking at here with AI. I am going to make it very clear in this podcast that I do believe that eventually what's going to happen is artificial intelligence will create the ultimate movie. And that is from the screenplay all the way through production. Now bear with me here as I lay out this roadmap. It's going to be more than just AI creating a script. Okay, I believe what will happen is the script will come, it will hit or check off all the boxes. I think that's really it. Instead of just saying it hit all the beats, it checks off all the boxes. Does it have a major star? Does it have an exciting plot or intricate plot? Uh, It'll go all the way through and check off all those boxes that we expect in what we call a good movie. From there, I think uh, CGI and digital technology will have advanced, and it's almost there as it is, to recreate not just sets and locations, but also as well, actors. I do believe there will come a time when actors, human flesh and blood actors, will, for the most part, go extinct. And I know you're thinking right now that'll never happen. I'm going to disagree with that. In running with Goldblum's The Fly... I want to bring it back a little bit to Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1979, another Jeff Goldblum film. And that is Scorsese in his recent article, which I provide the article in my show notes, and I highly recommend you read it. 
Uh, Scorsese has become one of the last people to fight against the pod people, the, the body snatchers. And the real question comes down to is, do you eventually just fall asleep and, and go with them? Or do you continue to fight with passion? And let me bring this analogy all together. If you are unfamiliar with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the plot line is pretty simple. An alien race in the form of seed pods comes to Earth and they are able to duplicate a host perfectly down to the finest memories. The problem is the newborn creature that these aliens become, they destroy the original host. They turn to dust, basically, if you see the 1979 film. However, the copy lacks emotion. There is no passion, no emotion with these new copies. And there is a scene where Donald Sutherland and Brooke Adams are being held by Leonard Nimoy and uh, Jeff Goldblum and, and other henchmen, other pod people, and they don't kill you. What they do is they make you go to sleep, they copy you, and you are born, as Leonard Nimoy said, into a whole new world, a world without anger, a world without war, all of those things. And Brooke Adams says something along the line of, and a world without love. And Leonard Nimoy replies, there is no need for love. You can have your same house. You can drive the same car. You can wear the same clothes. You can keep the same job. Everything is the same except for emotion. It is gone. No passion. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm drawing that analogy right to the idea of artificial intelligence creating all new films. Creating a movie digitally from the ground up, again, taking the whole point of checking off the boxes. There's the old statement, or uh, I forget what you would call this thing, uh, the axiom, if you will, and that is the belief that you could put a number of chimpanzees in a room with typewriters and all of them banging on the typewriters. Eventually, given time, they would write the great American novel. In other words, they would write it by accident. Now, AI is, is not leaving a lot to chance. It is not writing anything by accident. However, if AI cannot experience what we experience, if it cannot feel, then how does that go into cinema? And that is what Scorsese is saying. He's not an angry, crabby old man who's made his money, an entitled white Caucasian dude who has made his money and now shakes his fists and chases young filmmakers off his lawn. When he says Marvel's you know, series or DC series or the superhero movies, yes, they are entertainment. But he was correct in saying they are more along the line of amusement park rides. They are not cinema in the way of Fellini or Hitchcock or, or any of the old greats or even Orson Welles. When Orson Welles made Citizen Kane, he went against the studio system and really what most people were expecting. He made a movie out of love and passion. And that will be, of course, Welles' downfall in the studio system, which he will grow to distrust and, and eventually despise. You are taking then all these life experiences. So then you can create artificially your locations. You can eventually be able to create absolutely 100% realistic digital actors. And I'm talking about also the ability to recreate iconic actors. And I fully predict, I don't know if I'll live to see it, but I fully predict that one day a young Sean Connery will return to the role of James Bond. 
Uh, Harrison Ford will always be a young Indiana Jones. I've said these things in previous podcasts, and they are not out of the realm of, of possibility here. So you will be able to mix and match your stars with Tom Hanks, eventually starring one day with Marilyn Monroe. And what will go on is I can picture Hollywood going on some kind of huge digital buying spree to lock in licensing rights to all these celebrities and get Cary Grant and Boris Karloff and all the iconic faces as well. We saw this starting to happen already with Peter Cushing in Rogue One. And, uh, you know, they heralded uh, James Dean was returning in, in a small role, redigitized and brought back from the dead. And they've done this before. I believe they did it way back, very clunkily, I believe, in um, the 90s or early 2000s with Humphrey Bogart. But I predict that eventually there will come a time when real stars will just go extinct and we will hit a kind of plateau and then they will just create new stars. I believe there was an Al Pacino movie about that where he fell in love uh, with some kind of digital newscaster. I'm, I can't even remember. There's all this kind of stuff going on. But eventually, new stars will be formed out of the digital ether. That's what I am predicting. That real flesh and blood actors will just become a thing of the past. And we'll look back on one day going, oh, that's when things were good, when, when people actually were real. We will create these actors to act in the perfect AI model that hits the algorithm to give audiences what they want. And again, taking it back to Scorsese, Scorsese is saying that that is not cinema. That is content. And the use of the word content is actually degrading art. And so, for example, is uh, the Louvre filled with content or is it filled with works of art that were made with passion, love, dedication, all the kind of things that represent us as a species. Have we become the matrix then? If everything is just digital content to be consumed, and you can go back to my previous podcast on this, on consuming cinema, okay, C-Y-N-E-M-A, then Scorsese is definitely making a point. There's nothing wrong with the Avengers. There's nothing wrong with superhero films. But when they become that major part of your life or the they start being consumed as cuisine instead of the fast food product that they are. And I know some of you are going to say, no, there are great cinematic moments and passion and love in the Avengers movies. And I can cite this and that and the other thing. I understand if they move you, that is terrific. What Scorsese is saying, however, is that we are moving into a very, very dangerous area that overall is still pretty much uncharted. You can create an entirely digital film without real locations. And that also means without having to pay crew, without having to pay SAG, without having to pay unions and guilds. And this is what Hollywood really wants. You have actors that don't grow old. You don't have to pay them exorbitant salaries. Everything of the film other than the cost to develop the software and artists to create the software until eventually, I'm sure one day, we will have artists, digital artists. Imagine that, digital artists that create the digital world. We will no longer have editors and people who design the actors, but computers will do it all and it'll become an almost self-automated system. It wasn't such a stretch to believe since the mass deployment of CGI and the technological ability to create new worlds Look at Lord of the Rings. 
Lord of the Rings could not have been made without CGI. And the same for Harry Potter and, of course, as I had said, the Marvel and DC movies. Now we can do all of the things we wanted with a reasonable semblance of realism, and it's only getting better. You could not have made Jurassic Park well in the late 1980s. It was only through Spielberg forcing the issue to create technology to give us realistic-looking dinosaurs that Jurassic Park worked. And I know you can argue, you could have done Jurassic Park. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is they were able to create this stuff that checked off all the boxes because the one big box are realistic dinosaurs. And they did it. Look at Jaws. What made Jaws such a great film? And then I want to add to you what made Jaws the Revenge, in my opinion, not just the worst motion picture of all time, but the inspiration for this entire podcast because I continually posit that Jaws the Revenge is not a film. It is not C-I-N-E-M-A. Jaws is cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, because Jaws the Revenge is not anything but product. Jaws the Revenge was born out of the sole desire to simply make money, go back, check off the boxes and very lazily check off the boxes without putting much effort in just to make some money before the franchise expired. So bear with me here. The original Jaws was inspired, of course, by Peter Benchley's best-selling novel. The film was already a challenge to do because just by reading the book, you have a shark that does incredible things. And at this point in time in Hollywood, you don't have CGI. Look, you can find interviews with Carl Gottlieb who said, we, we didn't even know how we were going to do this. They, they went to Disney and, and actually thought they could animate, like by cartoon, like realistically animate a shark. There was even thought and consideration and serious thought and consideration to the idea of training a shark to do the things that you saw. And then Gottlieb said that, well, we really found out that sharks don't have much of a brain. So that was kind of out. Then you brought in an artist. Someone came up with the idea of getting Bob Maddie and then Roy Arbogast in and the, the creators behind the gigantic hydraulic squid in uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And one thing led to another and you brought artists out of retirement to create something that had never been created. And that's why, why I will argue that the shark in Jaws, Bruce the shark, is more than just a contraption that was created to give an effect. Bruce the shark is art, okay? He is a work of art. And what did they do with this shark after it was done? They threw it on the back lot and then it ended up in a junkyard somewhere where some guy tracked it down. And I think he's got it now, like he actually bought it. They discarded something that was nominated for best special effects because Spielberg did something amazing. And that is he created the technology out of thin air. AI can't do that. And then you have Carl Gottlieb who sat down and looked at Peter Benchley's original script, read the novel, and then rightly as a human being thought, and here it is, by checking off the boxes, what are people coming to see? They are coming to see a story about a shark. So he jettisoned a lot of the cumbersome subplots in the novel. 
Peter Benchley's novel has Mrs. Brody fooling around with Matt Hooper. The relationship between the three men on the boat, between Quint Brody and Hooper, is just something that is just nothing filled with anger and spite and jealousy and hatred. And then Hooper gets shot by Brody accidentally after the shark has him in his jaws after it broke through the cage. Gottlieb sat down and actually worked out a great screenplay that was lean, has perfect economy with the dialogue, every word in Jaws pushes the story forward and gave us an American classic and most of all, a global classic that is still beloved today. By going in with CGI and CGIing out that mechanical shark, in my opinion, is the same thing akin to cultural or artistic vandalism. Then you have two producers like Zanuck and Brown who understood that they needed to make a great film. See, there's the difference, man. You have two producers who are committed to quality. They could have made a shit film. And let's face it, man, Jaws could have easily been Jaws the Revenge. The book was already, according to legend, a bestseller, although there is the nagging story that Universal bought up thousands of copies of the book just to push it to the bestseller list. But it didn't matter. The new business of hype was working. And that is also part of this holy grail because hype is part of checking off the boxes. We found out that people want to see this. So they could have just made a slapdash shitty monster movie on, on a Corman level even, if you will. And I'm not smashing Roger Corman. What I'm saying is they didn't have to aim high. They could have made a really lousy movie, but instead Zanuck and Brown set out to make the best possible movie that they could. They brought in a young upstart independent director, Steven Spielberg, who had been tried and tested on a previous film, The Sugarland Express, and did some night gallery episodes, that kind of thing. But they gave this guy a chance. That is art. And Spielberg had a vision for Jaws, and he pictured a lean adventure movie. And Spielberg also brought in another creative genius, and that was editor Verna Fields, who understood how stories should flow and open up. It was Verna Fields in watching the early cuts who said, we need a shock in that first act. We need something. And that's how we got the Ben Gardner boat scene. That's because of Verna Fields. And an artist went out and they filled her swimming pool with milk to cloudy up the water. And they shot that scene in Verna Fields' pool. AI can't do that. Now, AI can avoid that problem in the first place because by checking off all the boxes, it will make sure that we have a solid beginning. We have a jolt somewhere 20 minutes in. We do this, 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 and this all according to the computer program. But the problem is we know it. And I'm going to go one step further right here. It's kind of like trying to recreate food artificially. You can make it taste sweet but we still feel that there's something artificial about it. And that is what I'm going to predict in the future one day with digital films. No matter how great the technology gets, no matter how excellent it is in forming a so-called perfect screenplay, it will never have the heart and passion of a human-created project. I still feel that the reason why Hollywood is driving for the ultimate algorithm AI holy grail creation of, of film is money. It's cost. They want to keep costs down and increase profit. And therefore, again, no unions, no SAG, no nothing. 
No actors to pay, no $20 million salaries. It's all pretty much profit except for just the basic below the line costs to create the film. So back to Jaws. You have Spielberg who comes in and he faces a slew of production problems from uh, just basic location issues and dealing with a, with a small, uh, small island government council to shooting on the open seas and all the problems that come with that. But on top of it all, and now famously, the shark would not work. Now, what do you do? As a director, you need to get the film done. You need to keep the morale of the crew up. The shooting schedule gets extended. The film starts going over budget. The brass out in California, they want Spielberg's head on a stick. The movie is costing almost 50% more than what was budgeted. Spielberg is almost fired several times from the production, but you have a producing team, Zanuck and Brown, who say, we are sticking by our man. And the day that the Universal Brass came out to see what was going on, they stood on the dock and it's at the end when the shark jumps out of the water and onto the orca. Uh, the shark came out of the water, rolled off its platform and sunk to the bottom. And David Brown had said in an interview, and I'm paraphrasing, that basically <laughs> he and Richard Zanuck saw their careers sink to the bottom along with that shark. But Spielberg fought it out. Using human creativity and passion, he understood that sometimes what we don't see is far scarier than what we do. Now, you want to see an example of that? Watch the Meg, okay? There's nothing left to the imagination there. And most of all, you end up with a, a PG mess is what you got. So there wasn't really much terror and there wasn't really much to the imagination. And that's something AI doesn't understand, that what frightens human beings is often what we don't see. So Spielberg understood that and hence the barrel situation came in. We see a lot of the shark through the barrels running through the water. Really, I think if you calculate it out, there are only about 10 minutes of shark where you actually see the shark, not its fin or whatever, but the actual shark I think it's 10 minutes or less in the whole motion picture. And yet Jaws is considered one of the most terrifying movies of all time. And that is because you had the human element. Now, I've done enough praising Jaws. My point is you have human hands, human creativity, human artistry, and human passion making this motion picture. Now let's go to Jaws the Revenge. So Jaws the Revenge comes in. Now we're already talking. Jaws 2 helps set the stage. Jaws 2, and I've done a podcast on this, Jaws 2 is well made. You don't have to like it. I'm not saying it's as good or better than Jaws, but Jaws 2 sported high production value because of Zanuck and Brown. It is much more made by committee. Jaws 2 lacks a lot of the passion and chemistry that made Jaws work. So in this case, Jaws 2 kind of set the stage for the declining quality of the series because Jaws 3 came along, which became a train wreck. But Jaws 4 is different. And I've argued this in episode two of my cinema podcast. And that is Jaws 2 was not only just made by committee, it was made as a way to squeeze out money from a budget that was basically sitting there. And the point that I'm making is if you remember in the office when Michael Scott had a budget surplus, and Oscar came in and told him, you need to, to spend that surplus because if you don't, when they give you the budget next year, they're going to deduct that money and think you can run the office for that. So they start saying, I want a copier. Pam wants new chairs for the office. Michael has to spend that money. In my opinion, 
That's what was going on with Jaws the Revenge. They found out they had about 28 million left somewhere sitting on the books and they had to spend it. Jaws the Revenge was not created out of creativity. I don't believe there was a single pitch session because the original writer of it was Sid Sheinberg himself who headed MCA Universal. He has nobody to answer to and he wanted to write a movie for his wife, Lorraine Gary, who played Mrs. Brody. And why? She had already retired from acting. The point is they wanted to make a few more bucks because Sheinberg was on his way out. This is my opinion. It is not fact. So everything is alleged in my opinion. So Jaws the Revenge, look, you know that it wasn't pitched properly because all you have to do is start with, okay, the shark is psychic. Boom, right there. If I were the head of any studio, I'd be like, get the fuck out of here and you should be fired for bringing me this. So that's what you're going to do. You're going to bring me a psychic shark. That ridiculous plot, which I don't have to renumerate here, went into production and we got what we did. Jaws the Revenge was simply a paycheck for a lot of people. And you can argue, I've had somebody on Twitter go, so you're discounting all the artistry and effort that went into the special effects? No, I'm not I'm not discounting that the crew worked hard. I'm sure they worked hard. I'm talking about the people at the top made a movie that wasn't a movie. It was an escape from Los Angeles over the Christmas holiday so they could winter in the Bahamas for three months and have a payday. And that's all Jaws the Revenge is. Jaws the Revenge is the bad AI version. Yes, it checks off all the boxes. You bring back Mrs. Brody. Hell, they even brought back Mrs. Kintner and they also brought back Select Woman Taft. Oh, there's some boxes with familiarity. You can't bring back Murray Hamilton because he's dead, but they did bring back some of the lower, smaller cast members, the day players almost basically, from Jaws and Jaws 2. So even Jeffrey Kramer didn't return as Hendrix. And yet I believe that's supposed to be Hendrix in the film that he's now, I guess, chief. And that Sean Brody is supposed to be the deputy now. And again, just so you know, Sean Brody was not to die. That was supposed to be Roy Scheider's character. They wanted Chief Brody to die, but Scheider smartly said, get out of here. He had nothing to do with Jaws ever again, and rightly so. Jaws 2 was his contractual agreement and Jaws 3 and 4 were never even considerations no matter how much money they threw him. So Jaws the Revenge is that bad version. It's checking off the boxes. And then we go back to Amity. Another box checked, right? If this were AI writing it, let's bring back all the icons to make people feel comfortable. So far, we have the makings of a hit. On top of it, we have Jaws. The title Jaws is a brand name. There is another AI box checked off. Then let's bring in a shark and we bring in a big shark. Is it related to the first shark? We don't know. We even have a ridiculous title like Jaws the Revenge. However, we also bring in Michael Caine who was extremely popular in the mid to late 80s with some people joking he was making so many things that he was actually showing up in somebody's wedding videos. That's a joke. But that's how much Michael Caine was working. So we bring Michael Caine in, who was up for an Oscar at the time and actually won it while making Jaws the Revenge and couldn't go to accept his Oscar for a quality film because he was making this piece of garbage. And by the way, a film that he claims to this day he has never watched. But the checks were fantastic. And that's my point. That is no different, folks. 
than AI. Jaws was crafted by human passion and artistry. Jaws the Revenge was created out of financial necessity. That's really it. AI, the crude version of AI. So let's go back to Scorsese and, and these younger generations love to paint him out to be by just simplifying him. They love to break Scorsese down, as I said earlier in this podcast. He's old. It comes out almost every time Scorsese speaks out to defend art. His disdain for the use of content can actually be applied to our own lives. Generations always think they have it you know, one up better than the one before it. And then the one behind that generation always thinks that the new one is missing out. You always have that. My generation was better. We had this and the good old days. Well, there were no good old days. However, we are reaching a point now where technology is stepping in and we're living vicariously through the technology and nothing else. Give you an example. Go out in the summertime and drive around neighborhoods, developments, these planned communities and count at whatever houses, how many bikes are in yards. And you're gonna find very few, if any, because they're all inside the kids are, and they're having their PlayStation games, they're all playing online, they're all talking on their phones, and now you're going, well, that's the way it goes, this is a new generation. Yes, but that generation doesn't know what it was like to go biking for two, three miles like we did with fishing poles strapped to your back or in your backpack, and spending a day tubing down a creek, these are human experiences because we now have a generation that doesn't even know how to talk to each other face to face. Dates are done by swiping, by answering texts back and forth, and hell, sometimes just virtual dates and sexting back and forth. In our day, it would have been writing dirty letters to one another or taking a Polaroid shot and sending it to your lover. And I know that it doesn't mean that what we had was necessarily better. But what I am saying is the passion and the feeling that I had as a 13-year-old is not being experienced now because digital technology has supplanted some of that. You can't AI life. Perspective is the key here because in the end, the search for the AI holy grail is likely more akin to the hunt for the fountain of youth. You want it. You think it's out there and you're always going to chase it. But here's the thing. I think eventually one day Hollywood's going to find it. They are going to hit a complete 100% AI film from beginning to end. There are now these uh, digital memorials. I don't know if you've seen them where you can get your personality and everything kind of uploaded and it will recreate you. It'll recreate your image in perfect CGI. It will recreate your voice and your loved one can sit down at the computer and call this up, whether it's online or a program on your private computer, I don't know. But they can quote unquote talk to you. But is it really you? How is that much different than invasion of the body snatchers? Yeah, it can answer back but it doesn't know all the fun, subtle things of the interactions and adventures you've had as a life. It only knows what it's programmed. And maybe you can one day create it really deep like the companion uh, in, in Blade Runner 2049 where you can, or, you know, she or, or any of those things. Maybe one day it will get there, which I think it probably will. But it's still not the person. No matter how perfect the digital clone it's not the flesh and blood human being that is still capable of very unrehearsed and unannounced type of spontaneity. 
What you're really looking at are digital ghosts. They can sound like you. They can sound like your loved one. They can look like them. And they can even possibly respond or hold a rudimentary conversation. Look, we're already doing that on chat programs when you go to a website and you need customer service. I have to ask now if I'm actually typing to someone, are you real or is this a robot? Because sometimes even the robot will write back, I'm just a, a you know AI chatbot, but I would like to help you. So it's getting smarter. I understand where this is going and I hope you see where I'm going with this. I just didn't want to rant and rag and dunk on technology. I want you to understand that really what we're looking at is very much akin to invasion of the body snatchers. You can make perfect clones. They can have all the hallmarks of the original thing, but it doesn't replace them and it doesn't mean that it's always an improvement. Again, with invasion of the body snatchers, you can have all the things you did before, only no emotion or passion. Look, technology will improve. This is going to happen, and studios know it. In fact, I am a ghost right now talking to you. Eventually, the need for screenwriters will go away, and I believe the same for actors and celebrity names everything crew, it's all going to go away. It's all going to go to AI. If Hollywood were smart, they would license every image that they can to trot them all back out and reuse them as this is going to happen as well. This is why remakes are so popular with studios, folks. The titles are already there. The movie was already made. The foundations are written. The rights are owned. Just recycle and repackage. That's why Jurassic World has done so well. Jurassic World is nothing more. The first Jurassic World is nothing more than Jurassic Park. And they recreated scenes. You can go online and look at it. There are side-by-side comparisons. And I've done a podcast on this as well, too, on remakes and reimaginings and repackagings. Just recycle and repackage. All you do is recreate the scenes. Look what Terminator Genesis did. They went back and reshot scenes from the previous Terminator films and put them like they're fresh and new in this film. What a mess. So what is Scorsese really saying? He's not ranting. He is talking about the love of film, translating it into the love and passion and zest for life. Anybody who thinks otherwise and wants to debase all of this and minimalize it down to as a stupid attack on their favorite superhero movies, then you don't get filmmaking and you don't understand what this man is trying to say. It's more than box office. It's more than big spectacular effects or most of all catering to your fanboy desires. Cinema is about risk. It's about art. It's about passion. And in the end, it's about the human experience. Orson Welles raged against the studio system. He knew where it was going all the way back in the 1940s. He was the angry man before Scorsese. I suspect today he would appreciate the Disney Marvel machine, but I don't think he would exactly love it. I think he would respect it. I respect it. Look, what Disney is doing with Marvel is... is absolutely awesome. I think it's amazing what they do. But don't try to pass it all off as art and that it's passionate filmmaking. The same can be applied. Look at Star Wars. The major problem with Star Wars is go back and look at George Lucas's original Star Wars and what they've become. And you'll see my point. Scorsese is making it clear. 
Don't confuse fast food with cuisine. And the real danger is when we no longer can do that. Film is about life, experience, sucking the marrow, exploring, feeling, touching, emotion, not content. This is Harrison Smith. Hopefully I still have a few more live podcasts and life in my filmmaking career before AI takes over. Wishing you the best wherever you are. Thank you.